This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Morena, no mai kiti korero. Welcome to the catch up on Manawatu People's Radio, Tereo Irarangi Unatangata o Manawatu. It is a Tuesday morning, uh, and uh, this Tuesday we turn our attention to Massa University, finding out all the wonderful things going on in that tertiary institution on the hill. And this morning we have Colin Bjork, a lecturer in humanities, media, and creative communications. Atamarie Colin. Atamarie, Kyora Fraser. Um, yes. Uh, Creative communications. This is something we need to unpack. You, you also uh, describe yourself as a digital rhetorician, a science communicator, podcaster, and global teacher. There's a lot of communication and creativity in, in everything you seem to be doing. But is that a fair assessment? It is indeed. Yes. Uh, this is that's it's part of a new school that we've combined recently. So universities are always doing little bits of shifting here and there. And this was uh, the kind of new name we gave our school, Humanities, Media and Creative Communication. So we have, I get to work alongside such amazing scholars. So my work in science communication and podcasting sits alongside people doing theater and the community work and people doing um, documentary production work and it's, and Literary analysis. It's a, it's a cool it's a cool place to be. Yeah, I note you're wearing a Radio Lab T-shirt. Uh, very very famous podcast, one that we rebroadcast on NPR as well. Um, and that's a good example, I suppose, of, of the nature of podcasting because it's been one of these citizen led. Uh, media institutions unlike any other, you know, newsprint, radio in its infancy, TV always run by government sort of influence, whereas podcasting citizen-led from day one. Mm -hmm. Um, I always like to boast that uh, New Zealand was lucky in that citizen-led broadcasting existed before podcasting Mm. in the form of, of access media. In fact, we were podcasting before podcasting was a thing. We used to call ourselves radio by appointment. Brilliant. Uh, listening to diverse things uh, across the schedule. And in fact, you know, it's legislated uh, in New Zealand law, Section 36C, the Broadcasting Act, to make sure that that diversity exists. Mm. What I find interesting in in America, less so, uh, and yet citizen-led media skyrocketed. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and that's uh, I'm glad you brought up the kind of New Zealand history in this area because that's something that I'm, as an American, as a Texan, I'm learning to kind of I, I have lots to acquaint myself with in terms of the media history here, um, and uh, in terms of the states, yeah, absolutely, it's been driven by large corporations, um, for profit uh, stuff. Obviously, there is the nonprofit angle and the the government funded in the states as well, NPR mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. But even that has you know NPR's. Uh, their their history of radio has shifted as they've needed to acquire more donation funds to fill the gaps of public funding, and so they've that's shaped the kinds of programming that they do. So mm-hmm. there is very much a history in the states of this kind of top down broadcast. Um, 
one institution to a broad public media, whereas podcasting, at least in its infancy, podcasting certainly tried to flip that dynamic, yeah. right? Yeah. Tried to be that um, community voice. Anyone could could pick it up and figure it out a bit. Um, it's interesting. It's just starting to shift a bit now. We're interesting. We're we're seeing um, what's called the platformization, right? Of of podcasting, where now it was always tied intimately to Apple, and Apple is quite mm-hmm. protective. Um, but Spotify is now trying to grab market share and um, and is doing very well at it. They are doing it. Despite their reputation for sort of screwing over music artists in terms of royalties, they seem to be delving into that podcast space and doing a really good job of it. Yeah. Um, they secured Joe Rogan, didn't they, as, they, as a big sort of uh, coup for them, which Apple would have been kicking themselves over. Yes. Um, the quality control side of things is also a neat one because, you know, people think a podcast is, you know, that's cute, that's fun, I can find something to listen to. But it has, as a result driven technological advancement to the point where anyone can create a podcast pretty much anywhere. You can do it on your cell phone these days, yes. for crying out loud. But also all these people coming out the woodwork with all the knowledge and, and information uh, is is quite astounding. But, you know, you only need to go back 20, 30 years to look at mainstream media and go, ah, oh, well, there's all of the experts. There can't possibly be any more. Uh, they're <laughs> everywhere. That's right. And And – this ties into something you want to talk to about research and, and publishing research. The peer review side of things, mm. again, is citizen-led. If if people don't agree with it, you'll know it might be in a simple review, but you'll know that peer review exists, mm. which just adds to the legitimacy of pretty much everything you get, pretty much everything you can hear on the podcast stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. The uh, the ways that uh, that communities create their own kinds of networks around podcasting to uh, – because it's – all podcasting is also uniquely tied to social media, right? So you'll get those, like you say, the reviews, which could be built into a, a podcasting app or could come via – lots of podcasts now have Instagram pages, Twitter mm-hmm. feeds, so on and so forth, um, and are responsive in many ways to the feedback that they receive. Um, so it does constitute a kind of um, community-led kind mm. of peer review. Well, that's cases. the thing. I mean it, 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 every podcast, every YouTube channel, I mean, they're all one and the same thing now, really. A podcast used to be audio only, but it's Mm. not. It's about bringing a community together. And whether it's a a highly academic uh, podcast, there is still community and there's still storytelling there. And I think that's the point of a good podcast is to have a community and and tell a story. Uh, I'm not suggesting that the catch-up is the pinnacle of podcasting, but we look at those things. We build a community of people who are interested in finding out what's going on in our community um, and and building the stories around that as well. Those are the two fundamentals, aren't they? Absolutely. Those are actually the two exact fundamentals that I use to teach the podcasting course that I run at Massey, which has only just had its first offering this year, and we're running it again uh, next year. We're pretty excited about it. About it, it's um, it is uh, designed for online learning. First, there is a face-to-face component um, for students who are learning here in the Manawatu. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that Massey has over 60% of its learners are online. Um, I've taught learners from across all six continents in just my two years at Massey. Um, and I love that diversity and that. And so we've designed this course. Um, is this to, the Get Published course? No, this is the um, this is podcasting producing audio stories okay, is this yep. course. Um, and so this is a, a first-year course. It's open to anyone in any major. It's a 100 level. So it's the entry, It's an introduction to podcast. 
podcasting. And this course uh, is is fa- founded on those two ideas that you said about building community and about uh, storytelling, um, which is actually why it's housed in the English and media studies side of things, the humanities and media, because – Anyone can hop online and learn how to set up podcasting gear, watch a few YouTube videos, and run and run a podcast from your house. So what, what are we doing differently in this course? We're adding that emphasis on how do you build community mm-hmm. around your podcast? How do you think carefully about your audiences and the people you want to speak to? And storytelling. It's really hard to tell a good story. It is. And um, stories are knit up in things like power and justice and all kinds of things. So we try to take that lens of storytelling and community into the ways that we talk about mm. and do and teach. And students produce a podcast by the end of the semester. So. It's, it's something that I, I try to advocate for from uh, in the, the not-for-profit space because not-for-profits stereotypically – are dreadful at telling their own story. Mm. They feel like they're boasting when they say we helped these people in in our organization. But it's vital for things like fundraising to be able to outline your story, say why you're doing the thing, what successes you've had, and occasionally relay some of the challenges and and put it out there for people to see. Um, And, you know, we're used to filling out funding applications and and doing the written word, but why not link to a podcast? Uh, Something that uh, someone that's... uh, looking at your application can go, well, I'll listen to that on the drive home instead of sitting here at my desk. You know, give someone an opportunity. Absolutely. Um, and that sort of lies in, uh, leads into another course uh, that you, you publish, uh, that, you, that you, you do called Get Published, mm. uh, Helping Researchers Publish Research. Yes. Uh, just before we went on air, I, I told you at university I had to write my 15,000 word dissertation. Um, and the written word is not my forte. Uh, when the staff here at NPR know when I write, I write as if I'm speaking, not mm. writing for, mm. for reading. So a lot of people have to read what I write two or three times before they can get it right. So giving people with my affliction or far worse an opportunity to do things in the multimedia space, mm. i.e. I, a podcast or maybe even a video, um, is that becoming a norm now to be able to present research in a different way other than a, you know, a, a peer-reviewed article in a, in a, in a newsletter? It's becoming increasingly common in certain fields, but I wouldn't say it's a norm yet. I think in fields like media, communication, humanities, you're seeing more um, journals that are that are um, just decide to run, open their own website and be you know born digital, and as a result, they can also take multimedia content, mm-hmm. which is really really cool. It hasn't yet spread to all the other disciplines as quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially in the sciences, there's I think a, there's a, a, a need for that in the sciences. Um, but this get published course is great because I get to work with researchers for across every discipline that Massey has, from from agricultural research to creative theater production, performance art, um, and I get to see the interesting research that they're doing and help them. Yes, some of them are writing traditional journal articles, um, but also help them think about what are other ways that you can communicate your research. It's not always communicating it to other academics. A lot of times. You you need to communicate your research to the public, mm-hmm. uh, especially if it's publicly funded research. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, and that's a crucial bit of the kind of relationship that universities have with the with the 
the the nation states and communities that that they are involved with. Um, and so, yeah, so there so there is. Um, I am encouraging a lot of the participants in that get published course um, to think. Um, yes, yes, we work on sentence level stuff and writing, but also um, think about in the sciences, for example, a visual abstract mm-hmm. is becoming more common. Can you um, take your eight thousand word scientific journal article that has all this jargon and do it in just a picture? Yeah. Um, and, and that helps. It has benefits. It's not, it's not just to kind of get over the tyranny of academic English, which is itself a kind of, uh, a kind of injustice that, that says certain people have, uh, privileges to be able to write and publish their research, whereas people whose English may not be their first language may, um, face some challenges. The, right? I mean, the, the, that, this is the thing, cause I, I, I am, I am, I'm, I'm very much down with the gatekeeping. Get rid of the, the gatekeeping. You know, NPR, our job is to teach people how to do, yeah. do, uh, radio, do podcasting, do the creative side of things. I went to university. I studied it for three years. I'm, I'm trying to pass elements of that on. Um, but it is a skill. Mm. Audio production is a skill. Absolutely. Um, and is that uh, much like you, you said, the academic written word is a skill, which mm. is thoroughly impenetrable to me. Um, how do you get – I would have thought it would be a rare beast, someone that can uh, do the academic written word and also be creative enough to turn that into something listenable because to be listenable, it has to be entertaining as well as educational. Um, there's, there's a lot going on there and it requires a lot of effort. I mean I've made a full-time job out of it. So – is that easy to convey to people? Do some people just not get it? Or it, I- It's difficult. It's really difficult. In fact, um, what I'm finding with the undergraduates who take the podcasting course is that they come in and their schooling has so thoroughly taught them to write and acts what whatever kind of academic essay, whatever that is, it, and it's an undefinable beast. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really hard to teach them, as you said earlier, to write for speech rather than to write for what they imagine a class or a university course to be. I've been saying in the 15 years I've been in this job, bullet points. Mm. Don't write it all out because not everyone can read you know, as if they're, they're talking. Just, just do the bullet points and link them together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and, yeah, and smaller words and shorter sentences. And, all, mm. and, and I, frankly, I think that goes even for the academic journal, journal article. I think if, if, if academic writing is impenetrable as it is to many people, I think it's the fault of the systems that we've built that have encouraged that kind of um, kind of, frankly, often horrid prose. Um, and we need better systems to help uh, people realize that just a, a longer sentence doesn't necessarily mean a bigger sentence. A bigger words is not a better. better. It's, it's, a, it's a, a throwback to the legal jargon that we have in our rental agreements and in our, in our insurance policies so that you can't find loopholes. Are people trying to protect themselves from loopholes by writing long impenetrable, mm. impenetrable sentences? Possibly. Um, I think it's also possible that all they've read is, is long impenetrable <laughs> sentences as well. I think it's also that uh, the... It it it's it's a performance of authority, right? Mm-hmm. It says, "Ah, oh, look, I've written something that's difficult to read, therefore it must be good and important, right?" Um, and it may not be an, a performance of authority that that is always one that we intend, but it's one that because you've read so many academic articles in your life, you sort mm-hmm. of feel like I have to perform that same thing that everyone else has. But there is this shift; it's not the norm yet, but that shift to say, "No, let's let's think about other ways of communicating our research mm-hmm. via podcast, video, etc." 
I often also wonder, though, if it is uh, the fact that, well, certainly in my brain, it's one continuous sentence. It never stops. The mm. voice in my head just keeps going and doesn't pause for breath. Whereas to be creative in your writing, that's the skill, mm. perhaps more more than the other way around of you know developing a skill of writing long prose and, and, and academic sentences. Yeah. Breaking away from the internal monologue is often the trick. Absolutely, yeah. That's- and that extends to podcasts as well. You've got to get out your monologue and, 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 and focus on the story and, and build that in. Speaking of which, uh, I should say we are here with Colin Bjork, a lecturer in humanities, media and creative communications on The Catch-Up. If you want to listen to this or previous editions of The Catch-Up series, just head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. Uh, we're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. They've had more than one mention this morning already. Uh, wherever you get your online listening, of course, accessmedia.nz as well. I wanted to talk about misinformation uh-huh. because this because uh, this is, uh, well, it's at the forefront really at the moment in, in little old New Zealand and across the globe um, and really coming to the fore with regards to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's starting with the publication of research as opposed to the publication of, in air quotes, research. Yes. And being able to differentiate between the two. Uh, you must see this pretty much every day in your line of work. Yes. Um, does it bring you down? It is difficult uh, to handle uh, so much misinformation out there, right? And, 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 and people differentiate between misinformation and disinformation. Misinformation is a circulation of, of incorrect information uh, without necessarily an intention to mm-hmm. mislead and disinformation is deliberately designed to, uh, to mislead. Um, and, and yeah, it, it's, it's a challenging thing. Uh, I think we really have to interrogate the systems that – well, OK. We have to interrogate two, two levels of systems that make this misinformation and disinformation possible. One is the system of academic publishing, of research and quote air quote research, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other is the, the systems of social media that end up picking those up and sending them viral um, because the social media systems – are designed – the things that go viral are designed to be flashy, uh, eye-catching, uh, um, emotional often content mm. that will um, that will just get the, the – that will go viral. But oftentimes scientific research is b- kind of boring. Yes. <laughs> like when you find the null hypothesis, that's not very exciting. <laughs> so the so the made-up study or the study that has really poor methods that, gets, that goes viral that says, oh, the vaccine is linked to whatever that sounds really awful and horrible, that thing goes viral. But the, it's actually – so there's – the social media platforms have a problem. But even academic publishing has a, has a problem and that is that uh, the ways the incentives uh, in, in our – field as researchers are designed is to publish a lot of research. Mm-hmm. And uh, what that ha- means is that people publish all kinds of things all the time. And when you have to give the context in your research and actually outline things properly, there are bits in there that you can pluck uh, mm-hmm. and not change a single word and make it whatever you want it to be. You know, a, a, an academic paper may recognise, for example, that COVID shares a lot with influenza. Well, I'll take that bit and exactly. do my own little disinformation run with it. Exactly. Um, does all misinformation start with disinformation? 
In other words, mm. does does someone uh, with an ulterior motive po- post something and hope that the innocent uh, bystander will look at that and share it in good faith? Mm. That's a that's a good question. My sense is that my sense is yes and no. My sense is yes, there are bad actors out mm-hmm. there, but my sense is also that there are maybe. This, like, for example, the scientific researchers publishing some shoddy research is is maybe maybe they're under a crunch with their job, their jobs at stake, et cetera. They feel like they have to publish the thing, even though their methodology has limitations, and so they just take a little bit and try to get it out quickly. Yes, there may be some acting in self interest there, but also the the systems that constrain them and encourage them to behave in that way are also problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, so my sense is it's a both and. Because um, yeah. I mean, I mean, you, you, t- you take fluoridation in water, for example. Yep. I mean, that, argue, that argument scientifically has been put to bed. Right. It, it, it is not a problem. Yes. It, fluoride is in a lot of water anyway. Yes, um, but there are still people who say, you know, this was a drug used by the Nazis in the Second World War, and it's going to kill our children and rot our brains. And I just, yeah. You do not have to look far to recognize that no one in their right mind believes that. Yes. Not, not in their right mind. That's, that's a tad disingenuous. But no one with knowledge and understanding of this believes that anymore. Yeah. But it persists. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I saw an, a billboard recently. Where did I – I was on – it was probably on social media that I saw someone – no, it wasn't. It was on a magazine, an or- a New Zealand organic magazine, and there was like a write it into the editor section, mm-hmm. and, and it was actually on this exact topic of the fluoride. And they, this person said that they had hung up a billboard in Tauranga or somewhere um, outside their uh, practice. I'm not sure what they do, and it got taken down. And so then they put it up online, et cetera. But but it, it, it's 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 a it's a misrepresentation of the data, right? It, the the billboard said something like. Um, fluoride uh, lowers children's IQ. Okay. Uh, (laughs) I don't know what studies they're pointing to, but first of all, IQ is a dubious concept in itself. It's like BMI. Yeah, it's it's a problematic concept that that has a long and bad history that's tied to racism and all kinds of stuff. Um, And it's it's just, it was used as a shorthand uh, in this ad to create fear. Mm -hmm. Um, and and honestly, so this is the one bit. So I, yeah, I I don't have a lot of patience for misinformation and disinformation because it's so dangerous. It's the importance of data analysis because, yes. as the famous quote goes, you can prove anything with statistics, Absolutely. and you can if you yep. cannot identify the difference between causation and correlation and yep. analyze the data properly. Yep. And to bring this back because we only got about six minutes left, yep. that's the importance of storytelling. Yes. in podcasting is to take that data analysis from someone who understands how to do it mm-hmm. and to tell the story convincingly to beat the misinformation and the disinformation that we are seeing yes is it, are people aware of that in the podcasting mm. world do they mm. understand the need for this sort mm. of thing because whilst citizen-led media is great and hello i'm part I'm, I'm part of the machine so i thoroughly endorse it there is the danger that it can run away from itself and split and change and as we talked about building community being so important you can build misinformed scared communities as well hello trump um yep. so are are people in the do people in the podcasting space understand this responsibility they have that i think is 
a great thing for you to point to because the thing is 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 I, I don't think that the all I don't think a wide enough amount of people in the community of podcasting recognize this responsibility. I, that's the short answer because the thing is is we know the tools, we know how all of this works, and the people involved in misinformation and disinformation are doing it better than us in some cases and. We know the tools to critique that, mm-hmm. use the same tools to out uh, viral media them. Find ways to if, – even if you're – even if – like I said before, the scientific research is not always exciting and with trendy headlines that are easy to go viral. But the storytelling element that you mm-hmm. mentioned, bring that in, create that narrative um, that really in, uh, has a chance to push back and push out of the spotlight the misinformation and disinformation. Because, I mean, social media is part of this as well. I, I, um, I, I uh, helped a friend, Paul Turner, write a song about the, the bat winning the Bird of the Year competition on RNZ, which he was incensed by. Uh, <laughs> and so I played guitar on a track of his. And I shared it on Facebook and said, you know, have a, have a listen to this. Uh, it caused more controversy than the, the, the current pandemic. Because I'd used that word, Facebook flagged it, and none of my friends saw that video. Wow. Social media has a responsibility as well in this space. Of yes. course, it's very difficult because you have millions upon millions upon millions of people using social media, and you have to use automated algorithms and, and bots yes. to identify problems. But when it gets it wrong, mm-hmm. the, the damage is somehow worse. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, social media – we. It can't just all be on us as the storytellers and the podcasters. We have to also hold these la- these large corporations and the social media platforms that they create accountable mm-hmm. for the ways that they propagate either injustices or end up quieting the social justice work or, yeah, yeah. or the or the the humorous not you know whatever kind of work that. Um, that, that we're engaged in is. Uh, we've only got a couple of minutes left and we've only, we haven't even touched on, on politics and, and the use of podcasting in politics. Mm. But just as a, a, a brief sidestep, uh, one of the things that was notable in, well, on the global stage with re- regards to New Zealand's approach to the pandemic was uh, Jacinda Ardern's uh, Facebook Live, in essence, podcasts at the end of the day, just answering people's questions and sort of breaking down some barriers. Uh, everyone knows I'm a raving lefty, but at the same time, I couldn't see Judith Collins doing that. And that's, mm. not, that's not a political spectrum thing. That's a tech-slash-community-slash-storytelling-savvy mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that the future of political engagement mm. instead of the big press conferences, even though we have those every day at the moment as well? Mm-hmm. I, I think so. I think there's going to be more and more of that, and it will have more and more sway than, for example, a debate. Like I think that's a, the debates were the historical ways that mm-hmm. we communicated um, our authority or credibility as political leaders. And increasingly, people are using social media platforms to uh, communicate their authority and credibility and to build communities. Because mm-hmm. the, the, the journalists are, are the sort of the, the, the front line of defense, really, in terms of accountability and asking the right questions and relaying it as, as best they can. I feel that's very important. But And, and when you look at Jacinda using Facebook Live, you could argue that the accountability isn't there, but isn't it? Because at the end of the day, the voters are watching that and will make their own conclusions. Do we still need journalistic interpretation of that stuff? 
Uh, we we still need journalists, absolutely. Uh, they hold they're so central to the role of a democracy. Um, but it is interesting because you're talking about the Jacinda Ardern directly to the Facebook stuff, and you have the same thing on the other side with Trump directly mm. tweeting to his users stuff, mm. and that and if and if. So you still need journalists because that same power of directly communicating to a community without um, as much of a gatekeeping requires the journalists to step in and hold people accountable mm. in some ways. Yeah, uh, Colin Bjork, we are completely out of time on the catch-up this morning. We've sort of ping-ponged our way around all of the digital spaces and podcasting. Uh, a reminder, Colin is the lecturer in humanities, media, and creative communications, a digital rhetorician, science communicator, podcaster, and global teacher up at Massey University, that tertiary institution on the hill. Uh, thank you for getting into, uh, getting coming into the studio this morning and talking to us. And uh, I think we should possibly do it again sometime. There is more to unpack. Would love to, Fraser. Thank you. Uh, And if you want to listen to this or previous editions of the Catch-Up series, just head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. Back tomorrow with Jimmy Ellingham from Radio New Zealand looking at what he's been reporting on in Manawatu. Join us tomorrow. Bye for now. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.